This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. I just want you to know that even though you tried to terminate me, revenge is not an idea we promote on my planet. But we're not on my planet, are we? Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about franchises film by film. I'm your host, Gabriel Green, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, James Hamrick. How's it going? Doing pretty good. Um, tried to make the best of this kind of, I guess, break we've had, although releasing the episodes of I guess it's not really a break since we're recording ahead of time, but um, I miss like every time we go for like two weeks without recording. I'm always like, oh, good, I don't have to worry about that tonight. And then after I would miss it, or after like we skip it, I'm like, man, I kind of miss talking about movies tonight. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's good to be back. Yeah. Um, I, so I just moved into a new location uh, today. So. It will probably sound different. Um, if it sounds terrible, I'm sorry, but I haven't had time to test anything. <laughs> so our last series uh, was on the Men in Black franchise, and now we'll be starting Pixar's Toy Story trilogy, which is exciting because this is amazing and uh, one of my favorite trilogies of all time. So this is going to be really fun. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's pretty much a perfect trilogy start to finish, and it's been way too long since I've seen these, so I'm excited just for myself uh, to be able to go back through them movie by movie, and I don't think I've really ever watched them just back to back, so that's going to make this even more fun. Yeah, I think I think Toy Story is probably the film I've seen the most in my life. It was just you know one of the few films we had on cassette growing up, and so we just watched it over and over again, but I, I hadn't seen it for... I'm guessing at least five or six years, so it was really, really cool to be able to uh, sit down and watch it again after all this time, and still, you know, remember every line and everything. Yeah, and I mean, that moment in the very beginning, whenever Andy moves and kind of reveals the Toy Story logo and the music first starts, like, I, I've just got hit by this wave of nostalgia and just about started crying right there, like, oh, I'm home. Yeah. And uh, before we get into the main review, I'd ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and then like us on Facebook. All right, let's just dive into the behind the scenes story for this film, um, which is actually is, I found is kind of hard to do without talking a bit about you know the story of Pixar as a company and the, you know it, as a creative force. Uh, but it's, it's a very, very long and complicated history. So I'm, I'm going to try and comb through and give uh, give you the highlights um so it actually goes way back to uh around 1974 which is 21 years before the toy story was released uh when ed catmull he was working at the uh new york institute of technology uh with a bunch of other animators in a group called uh the computer graphics group so they had this they had a dream of creating you know, the first computer animated film which at that point was completely impossible. You know, the, the technology just simply did not exist. So anything they wanted to do, they would have to build uh, the computers and software themselves. Uh, after several years, they decided they, they should probably actually work at a real film studio. So uh, in 1979, Catmull and several others moved over to Lucasfilm to work in Industrial Light and Magic as the graphics group. What a place to start. Yeah. 
Yeah, so after a few years, they uh, continued developing technology, and they, they, they were the ones who created some of the first uh, you know CGI effects in film, uh, the uh, Genesis effect in Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, and the stained glass night coming to life in Young Sherlock Holmes, which are some, some of the most like advanced uh, computer effects at their time. And I actually went and watched the, the stained glass night from the, uh, the Young Sherlock Holmes, and as an effect, I mean, you can tell it's CGI, but it still holds up. Like it looks better like the mummy in the 1999 mummy or anything. <laughs> and so in uh, 1983, following the release of the return of the Jedi, Lucas was uh, consolidating and he was, he was going to sell their division. They decided to morph uh, from an you know, animation company to a hardware, a computer hardware company. They, they, they wanted to make themselves profitable as a team. Uh, so they developed the Pixar image computer, which of course they uh, eventually used as a company name. It was about this time that uh, John Lasseter joined the company, and he was he was behind um, uh, the first four or five shorts uh, were all directed by him, kind of leading up to finally being able to make a film. Um, in 1986, Steve Jobs, who had been re- recently fired from Apple, he purchased Pixar from George Lucas uh, for fi- five million dollars. Not a lot for what they become. I think we're used to those four billion dollar uh, deals at this point. And so it wasn't until 1990 that Pixar sold off their hardware divisions and uh, completely focused on trying to get an animated film made. In 1991, they made a deal with Disney to produce three films for them. Um, and if 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 you're at all interested in that story, I'd uh, highly suggest Ed Catmull's book, The Pixar Touch, which is mainly about you know kind of the philosophy behind Pixar, but it has all the story behind it. It's really fascinating. So originally the project that we now know as Toy Story uh, was going to be a Christmas TV special with the one-man band toy, Tinny, from uh, a short that they had done before called Tin Toy. Uh, This was commissioned by Disney, whose animation department was under Jeffrey Katzenberg, who is one of the biggest forces in the era of modern animation and is a villain to all Pixar lovers. Um... And you should read Disney War. Uh, This idea soon morphed into a feature film with Disney funding the film and having full rights for it and the option to produce sequels. Um, And, of course, we're going to talk about those as well. Um, So John Lasseter, Andrew Stanton, and Pete Docter, um, very important fellows, they started working together uh, on a story treatment. Uh, Originally, it was going to have Tinny and a ventriloquist puppet called Woody going off on some grand adventure. Uh, Jeffrey Kastenberg uh, wanted to make Woody the villain of the story, kind of this guy, this uh, evil overlord who kind of abused all the other toys. I wonder if they used that idea for Lotso later on. But after a while, uh, that that didn't work, and so Jeff Katzenberg suggested they make it a buddy comedy. Originally, uh, the character of Tinny was supposed to be the main character, uh, but then they... Uh, Eventually, they decided that the one-man band concept just wouldn't work, so they changed him into a spaceman named Lunar Larry. Uh, they cycled through a, several other names before finally settling on uh, Buzz Lightyear after the astronaut Buzz Aldrin. Uh, then Woody, who was originally the ventriloquist doll, became a cowboy, kind of to sh- show the clash between the classic westerns and then you know, early sci-fi films. For all for all the writers, for the main writers in this film, Lasseter, Andrew Stanton, Doctor, and uh, Joe Ramped, this was their first time scripting a feature, and they were having a really hard time cracking the story. So at some point in the production, they had attended one of Robert McKee's three-day story and screenwriting seminars, and you could really see the influences of that like all over the finished script. 
like just from a, a plot structure and character stand, a character arc standpoint, this is like a, a super airtight film. You can see they they really took out the lessons they learned there to heart, and it it, it definitely influenced Pixar's stories over the course of their history. They were still having trouble writing, so Disney b- brought on Joel Cohen, a completely different Joel Cohen than the one you know, uh, Alex. Didn't we have a like a mess up with, or not a mess up, but an Ian we, Cohen? Yeah, Ian Cohen. There's yeah. just a bunch of Cohens running around. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, uh, also Alex Sokolo and one Joss Whedon uh, was brought on to help write this script. Whedon was responsible for the creation of Rex, and he also wanted to have Barbie. Um, play a large role in the film, but they they couldn't get the rights. Um, more on that in the next episode. <laughs> Overall, this time Disney had been constantly making demands uh, for what they wanted the film to be like. Uh, Katzenberg especially wanted it to be you know very edgy um, and with you know a lot of modern adult humor, and it just was really clashing with the the story that uh, Lasseter and company wanted to tell. Uh, it it was turning Woody. Even after they had, just, they had kind of ditched the idea of Woody being the villain, he was still just kind of a really mean-spirited jerk, and the the film did not work. Um, after one really disastrous screening, <laughs> the Pixar employees call the Black Friday incident. Pixar, I mean Disney, completely shut down the the production, and were were seriously considering canceling the film because it was that bad. Disney had stopped funding it, so Steve Jobs had to step in and keep funding production with his own money. Until three months later, they came back with the finished script for what we now what we now know as Toy Story, with uh, Woody obviously no longer being the tyrannical jerk, but a competent and well-meaning leader. Um, and Buzz was, you know, the deluded toy who believed himself to be the real Space Ranger. Sounds like the original concept for Woody ended up becoming what all the other toys thought of him during this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Lasseter had always wanted Tom Hanks for the role of Woody, and I'm I'm glad that that was the case because he's absolutely perfect. Um, but it was different for Buzz because Paul Newman, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, and Jim Carrey were all considered for the role. Uh, Billy Crystal was even approached for it but turned it down. Um, he uh, ended up regretting it and later voiced Mike Wazowski in Monsters, Inc. So really this is a win-win because... It's another movie with a perfect voice cast. Um, And then, of course, eventually Tim Allen was chosen. Uh, And then, honestly, this the supporting cast for this movie somehow manages to be just as great as the leads with Don Rickles, Wally Shawn, John Ratzenberger, Annie Potts, and Arlie Ermey. Laurie Metcalf, who is just nominated for Lady Bird, plays Andy's mom, and Penn Gillett, I Penn Gillette. Gillette. Uh, voice the announcer on the Buzz Lightyear commercial. Um, and honestly, every single character in this, like their voice just feels iconic to me now. How They're all very, very distinct and they all play off of each other so well. I could listen to uh, Potato Head <laughs> argue with any of them um, just for hours. You uncultured swine. Um, so uh, Disney in- wanted it to be a musical, to you know, to fit their brand of animated films at the time. But uh, Pixar was very much against this idea. Eventually, they compromised by hiring Randy Newman uh, to compose the score and write three songs that kind of serve as narration for the characters' inner monologues during you know, key moments. Um, which is a choice I really absolutely love. I think it could it, it could be so cheesy, but this, the songs Randy Newman writes and how how they're used within the story, I think, 
is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, like they have a way of not like explicitly saying exactly what's going on, but like being so relevant that it, it just feels natural to the movie. Like it, it's it's not an explicit narration, but you still feel like it just belongs in the scene, and it wouldn't be the same without it. Yeah, it, it, they completely capture the, just the whole emotional tone of the film at the time. And you've got a friend in me will, I mean, oh nearly bring me to tears every time I hear it. So perfect. Um, Gary Rydstrom uh, from Skywalker Sound did the sound design. And I think this is probably a lot of nostalgia talking, but I think this is one of the best sounding films ever made. Uh, just, I haven't seen, as I said, I haven't seen this film in five or six years. And yet I remember every single sound effect and voice and just, the the sound mix is, I think is absolutely perfect and it, it it again this is probably nostalgia talking but it feels as if it was designed to be iconic like this this is kind of up there with Star Wars for me in terms of just making these iconic sounds that just kind of are burned into my brain and so finally uh, finally the finished film was released on November twenty second in nineteen ninety five it was uh, paired with a Roger Rabbit short called. Ro- Ro- with a ro- too many R's. <laughs> it was paired with a Roger Rabbit short called Roller Coaster Rabbit. Um, although some screenings had the adventures of Wally, uh, of Andre and Wally B, uh, one of Pixar's early shorts. I've seen that short. It's really, really r- rusty. I'm surprised they would. Maybe they really wanted people to be impressed about how far <laughs> animation had come. Um. Uh, so James, what uh, do you remember uh, when your first viewing of this film was, and you know what has your relationship uh, with it been over the years? You've kind of uh, hinted at it, but so I mean, with Toy Story one and two, I really don't remember the first time I saw them, uh, and I've actually seen Toy Story two a lot more. Uh, we didn't actually own the first one; it was the second one we owned on VHS. And so if, if you just nearly burn through your VHS copy of this one, I, I did the exact same with two. Um, so I, I watched this one a handful of times though growing up, definitely enough to, to love it. Um, but I, I think I probably actually watched the second one first. And then oh. mm-hmm, just just because, like I said, I think that's what we own. I think my, um, my older siblings probably watched this one first. Um, and then when the second one came out, we bought that and that was around the time where I was actually able to watch a movie and semi comprehend what was going on. (laughs) And so I grew to love the second one and then we'd rent the first one from time to time. And so I definitely watched it several times. And like I said, I, I genuinely loved it. Um, but I can't remember exactly when that first viewing was. Yeah. I have absolutely no idea when my first viewing was, um, we had a cassette that had been recorded off TV, so it had the commercial breaks and everything. I still remember all the commercials. We absolutely wore that tape out. I have no idea how many times I've watched this movie, but it's definitely the one I've seen the most in my life. So this, it's always been a favorite of mine. The second didn't come later. I think I eventually... Probably simply because we, we we exhausted this movie, I started to like the second a lot more. Although now having seen it again with uh, you know some space in between, I'm I'm wondering if I'll be reconsidering that. Yeah, now, I'm not sure if it's just my own nostalgia, but two has always been my favorite. Uh, but I really really love this one again watching it now. So that's why I'm excited to watch all three back to back to really get my bearings on where I place them all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so th- 
this is going to be hard to talk about just because uh, this this film like every element is iconic for me and i just you know separating like actual quality from just simple nostalgia is going to be going to be interesting um so let's just start with the characters um you have woody uh voiced by the you know absolutely wonderful tom hanks and actually going back i, th- I think i i think the thing that makes Toy Story and Pixar in general so special is how they approach telling stories. Um, and you can see that in these the characters of Woody and Buzz. These are not children's film characters. They are they are completely adult characters with you know complex motivations and needs and desires, and and, you know, and complete arcs that are laid out perfectly through the film. It's Pixar really changed the game by, by treating these uh, films, not like store, not like children's films, but just as if they were writing an adult story, you can see that there, there are no shortcuts in the characters. There are no, it's never juvenile or silly. Uh, you know, it doesn't go for the, it doesn't constantly go for the cheap burst out gag. It's all just rock solid storytelling and characters. It's crazy. Yeah, one of my friends who had actually never seen like any Pixar movie, which is shocking, and I feel sorry for him. But he is essentially just asking, like, what? Why are they so loved by adults? Like, even you know, it's one thing to have seen them when they're when you're a kid, but I mean. <laughs> We're we're adults now, and we're still seeing these Pixar films as they come out now. Um, so obviously, nostalgia is no longer a factor for that. So like, who's just asking like, what what's the draw? And it's exactly what you're saying. Where I mean, they're they're kids movies, but they're not really kids movies. I mean, this one deals with identity crisis. The second one will deal with abandonment, and I mean, of course, the third one deals with all sorts of adult things. And so that's that's. Part of why I think these movies survive for as long as they do is just because they aren't just silly, cheap jokes that we're going to end up seeing replicated 500 times, you know, 20 years after their release. They're very, very grounded in uh, really well-developed characters going through very real struggles and problems. And they, with a lot of children's movies, you you have a very cheap way of like finishing an arc and working everything out together but in this one i mean everybody with well with this one in particular you know woody and buzz both have to really really work through their own issues and while it's hilarious and you definitely have signs of a children's movie here and there it's it all works so perfectly where i i don't mind the moments where it's just a kid's movie because i'm still laughing at it because i think it's hilarious and it's because it's being occupied by just really well thought out characters. Yeah, and I I just have to praise the writing. It's even beyond you know having the the boldness to make fully adult characters in, in a quote unquote children's film. As I mentioned, the the writing is completely rock solid. This is like kind of like a new hope for me. It's just, it's just one of those films where you see the benefits of having been passed through so many talented hands like over such a long period of time they had they had the time to just take the story and keep reworking it and you know anything that wasn't perfect was eventually shaved off till you have this film where there's no wasted time there's not a single wasted scene every character has a purpose every moment just every moment leads into the next one 
And I, I think we are left with what is pretty much, I think, a, a flawless movie. And I think that the tri- that, pr- that process of trial and error through this film's lengthy production is uh, uh, kind of to thank for that. And you definitely see that the, the perfection in this movie when you watch other, I guess, comparable in the genre, like other comparable films, just because of, you said how airtight this movie is, you can examine it and like critique it on the same level as you can like these big live action movies um that are praised because in reality the way it moves and the way it's structured it's it's a very like mature kind of storytelling that in a lot of ways you don't expect from these kinds of movies um yeah it's it's just I'm, i'm glad that it went through the arduous process it did to get made because of what the end product is. Yeah, and you know, we, we start off with Woody as the central character. Looking at this film only really has like two, you know, full rounded, well rounded characters, and that's fine. Like the other all the side characters are, you know, incredibly entertaining, but they're you know, they, they don't they don't have arcs. They're you know, that that's not why they're here. Um but the film kind of starts out with only Woody as the kind of lead that we're kind of connecting to and empathizing with. And even Buzz kind of falls into the side into the for probably the first half maybe two-thirds of the film kind of is regulated to the side sort of as a uh mainly as an antagonist for woody but also kind of just as, as a goof someone we laugh at but i i, I find it kind of fascinating how towards the as we come towards like the end of the second act but kind of buzz comes into his own as a fully fledged character till by the end the end i think that they are they are you know fully co-leads in this story and it is weird that, you know, after you finish it, you think back and it's like, oh, yeah, those Buzz and Woody were the two main characters. Because like you said, it it is definitely about Woody. And I think, you know, as whenever they're both taken into Sid's room and Buzz sees the commercial, that's when you really start to transition into Buddy or into, into uh, Buzz, like really taking on co-lead. Uh, where, like you said, by the end of it, this was their story. This was their journey. Initially, it was... It was Woody having to go through go through something important to him, where we're we're seeing him grow and change and see through uh, you know see these things and from his perspective. And Wood or um, Buzz is just kind of there to, like you said, be laughed at. He's he's this funny little obstacle that Woody has to deal with. And then towards the end, with Buzz's I guess meltdown, now he like Woody is kind of there. Just he understands what has to happen, and he's ready to leave. But it's Buzz that we're real. The story's focusing on now, and now that Woody is starting to come towards the end of dealing with his issues, Buzz starts to deal with his. To where they both work together, and you see the moment when Woody is locked in the the little basket under the toolbox. It's kind of where both of their their characters' arcs perfectly come together and they're able to put their differences aside and move on and it's you really get two really really great journeys with both of these characters um and it they're both completely earned despite how how little setup we might see for buzz when it happens it happens so strongly and it it's worked it uses what like all of the what we you know may have thought were just throwaway gags it uses them to influence you know where he's at whenever his story really starts happening. Yeah, and I love how Woody at the at the beginning, you know, he's he's a really good guy. As far as you know, as far as we can see, he's a you know a very competent 
and caring leader who you know, who guides these toys um, to, you know, to try and and you know make the most out of their lives. And if you know Buzz had never come in, they I think they would you know they would have been a you know, perfectly functioning family. But I like that once Buzz does come in, you start to see these cracks in Woody and these core flaws of him as a person that you know we would have never seen if he hadn't been challenged like this you know he he has the speech you know it doesn't matter how much we're played with what matters is that we're here for Andy when he needs us but you realize as that goes on he doesn't actually believe that he's he he's he's totally fine you know with, you know saying that and he probably thinks he believes it but when, that, that's because he's Andy's favorite toy. He's the one who gets all the playtime. He's the one who, you know, has this you know close friendship with this boy, and and, and that, which is beautifully illustrated in the opening sequence. You know, you you have that the brilliant little uh, setup of all the child's play, which is you know it's it's just like if you if you if you've ever been a kid and played with toys, this is how you play with toys. Um, but then it goes you know you have the Randy Newman song that just completely gives you everything you need to know about these two care about this character and how much Andy, you know, being Andy's favorite toy means to Woody. Um, so yeah, that once buzz comes in as the new cool toy, you just see Woody start to unravel to where, you know, he, he's at the point where he's going to try and take, he's, he doesn't care about Andy anymore. Nothing. He, like Andy loves Buzz and wants to play with him, but Woody is willing to take Buzz away from Andy if that could just mean you know more more for himself. He he doesn't actually truly care about Aunt, what Andy wants at that moment. Um, <laughs> it's crazy. We're talking about this with a toy. Yeah, and that's why you know when you're talking about how how good the writing is, every bit of praise that the writing of this movie gets is completely deserved because you do have lines like you know like, it doesn't matter you know, how much he plays with us. Well, like you, you, you really see the kind of leader he thinks himself as. And then, like you say, it gets ripped apart and, or torn back. And you see that maybe whether, whether he's lying or he thinks he believes it, you see that that's not the case at all. And so, so many things are set up just in that opening scene. I mean, my goodness, we have a scene of him playing with toys and then the opening presence and, and they're like a little council or meeting and everything. And it's only the beginning of the movie, but it sets up one. It's just incredible world building. Like I think oh, yeah. that's something that I'm not sure is brought up a whole lot when talking about this movie. But this is like one of the best examples of like world building in a movie ever. Because the rules of this movie are never really just fully explained. It just shows us. Not, not, no, not, not just not really. Not at yeah. all. Nothing. I mean, like the mo the most we get is that line towards the climax where he says, "We're gonna have to break a few rules," but we we already know what those rules are, even though we've never been told. Yeah, and so you know, by the by the time we're twenty minutes in, we know that for whatever reason, you know, humans cannot see them. We don't know why the why the toys think that's true. Why they how they've come to the conclusion that them knowing them alive is a bad thing. We, it's just. This is how things function in this world, and it works perfectly. It it never gets bogged down in telling us how the how the toys are even alive in the first place. It just opens up. There are alive toys that 
pretend to be, you know, these inanimate objects when adults are around. And it works amazing. And we find out it's not just these toys. Like, when we get to uh, Pizza Planet and you have all of the aliens and the claw. Like, <laughs> this is just how this world is. And I love that it's up to us to just kind of follow along. Um, so, yeah, just the with the way the writing is in this movie, where at the beginning it tells us about all these characters, it tells us about their dynamic, it foreshadows futures, uh, future events, it sets the whole layout of the movie, it sets the tone, um, and it kind of gives us rules without giving rules. It's just such such an effective beginning to this movie. Yeah, and in that one scene where everybody the coast is clear and everybody gets up, we are introduced to all the characters and every one of their dynamics and personalities is completely set up for the movie with it in that like two minute scene. And then the, obviously the staff meeting, but it's just the, just the economy of storytelling. And, and even more than that, I love it. The, the even throwaway gags are actually important to the story. Like for example, the, the Etch-A-Sketch uh, <laughs> thing where he does the draw, it, it comes back later when you see the Etch-A-Sketch is draw, drawing Buzz or <laughs> uh, drawing a <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, just, just, well, well uh, uh, so for a story reason, when, when he's drawing Buzz, you know, to show the, the absolute the status quo, and the same with uh, with Rex. When Rex jumps in and roars in this pathetic roar, you know, I'm calling for fearsome, but I just don't feel it. And then it Buzz is later on, you know, able to help him, you know, discover his true dinosaur. It's like the, these two throwaway gags that are used to introduce the characters in the beginning come back and actually have story importance later on in the film. It, it's it's just such. Uh, economic storytelling that that's what uh really surprised me watching this because i guess it's because i have all three movies just so ingrained in my mind that i i know everything there is to know about these characters i feel like but then to to rewatch the first one and realize that before before uh buzz falls out the window there's not a whole lot of just regular interaction with these characters but like you said in this this very beginning introduction to all the characters and subsequent meeting like we know all of these people perfectly. Like I might as well not even have these three movies worth of knowledge because I have everything I need just in this first scene because of how, and it, it doesn't feel just like, like a gag for a gag sake. And you pretty much already touched on that with the whole, you know, everything that happens happens for a reason. It is funny just in and of itself, but this movie does, does one better than that and make sure that it's not just funny for funny's sake, but it's there to serve the story and so the fact that five minutes in, I know everything there is to know about Rex. I know that everything there is to know about Mr. Potato Head. The dynamics are set up so perfectly um, that when the story changes, that when when Buzz is introduced, we feel like we've already seen a fully functioning society. Like, I know the ins and the outs of this culture. And so whenever it's upset like it is when Buzz shows up, we don't feel it's it's not jarring to us it's not, we're not feeling like oh well i mean i barely even got to out to see how it worked before he showed up somehow in the short amount of screen time we see how big of a deal the shakeup that buzz brings actually is and we also see you know, the, the toys they have all the routines you know they have the staff meeting when kids come for the birthday party they all gather up on the, the dresser to watch or <laughs> and they, you know, they send the army men down and which is a really really great sequence i think you know, just <laughs> one of the great uh you know heist slash infiltration sequences i think is when the uh, the army men go down um and randy newman's score right then you know when they jump off and the parachutes come out i i, I it's, the music is all, all part of it, I think. But you know, 
having the troops all there, you know, kind of ready and they, they have the whole mission planned out because they've done it every birthday. They always go down and do the recon. It's just, th- we feel like this world has been there for years. It, 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 it doesn't feel like we're stepping into a world that was just created for this film. It's been there forever and it's going to be there after we leave. And what's, and what's so crazy about that is they set up the, the status quo is perfectly set up and in less than 15 minutes, it all gets turned upside down and even though we have we only spent 15 minutes with these people and with their society and with the you know the culture they have as it gets turned upside down it's genuinely disturbing to you know to watch Woody get supplanted and with uh you know strange things as everything's changing it's it's it's, it's downright disturbing i uh, and you know the strange thing sequence stands out in my mind as a child it's one of just the most depressing things I'd ever seen. You're having Woody watching Andy sleep outside of the toy bin and he slowly closes it. It, it, it made us care so much about this character in 15 minutes that, you know, when change, when change comes, it, it, it hurts. Yeah. I had a, there's a, there's a moment in toy story Two where Woody has the, the nightmare where he's being thrown into the, the trash bin. That was kind of my... Oh, gosh. That was a moment that embedded itself in my mind. So, whenever I started watching Toy Story, I was better prepared for what I'm sure would have scarred me right then. Just seeing this this man's entire world be, you know, shaken to its core. But, but yeah, even... I mean, even as an adult watching that scene, though, there's, there's something so... Because i think that's one of the strengths of the film is that these characters feel so real and are so well written that none of us have ever you know obviously we're not toys but we haven't been in that identical situation but it's just so human which is again ironic considering we're talking about toys but it's you know this idea of like seeing having to watch the status code uh status quo change and essentially being asked by life to be okay with it. It's, it's something that feels, you know, very real and that most people can deal with so that when we see Woody go through it, it does resonate with us. Even though, again, we're not in that same situation. Yeah. And then you know, once the plot gets started, it's kind of, you know, it's just a series of, you know, upsets that are kind of leading towards the climax. But I love how believable each and every conflict is at, you know, as it comes in, you know, Woody didn't mean to knock Buzz out the window, but all the toys think he did. So now he's stuck out on the road and he can't go back unless he can get Buzz to come back. And Buzz doesn't care. And Buzz, you know, Buzz is going off, going to try to do his own thing. And so each, as each, you know, setup and conflict and setback occurs, it just, it happens perfectly in line with the characters and their motivations and their actions. Um, and, and all often, you know, because of their actions, you know, Woody and Buzz get into the fight because Woody tried to shove him under the desk, under the, uh, behind the dresser. It, it, it's it. Whereas you know Woody didn't mean to knock him out the window, he's still at fault there. And as it goes with each, you know, each of them is kind of selfishly going after their own ends, even as they're in this crisis. And you know, they, they, no matter what they do, they kind of fall back because they're trying to they're trying to you know do it on their own. And, you know, it's not till the end where they finally realize you know what their what their purpose is and each one is willing to you know sacrifice himself for the other they can find that they are finally able to get home uh it's it's, it's crazy like watching that last you know 20 minutes both of them you know all but sacrifice their life for the other one 
like three or four different times over the course of the climax. You know, these two characters who had, you know, been trying to almost kill each other right before that. Um, and and we, we, we believe that change. The, 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 the story arcs have been done so well up till then that we buy that change in them. Um, and obviously a lot of that is to the vocal work from uh, Tom Hanks and Tim Allen, who are just absolutely perfect casting. They, they make every single line from them like completely quotable. It's it, and their chemistry together <laughs> is, is unbelievable. Yeah, I, it's it is crazy that it's a 22 year old film and it's being quoted, you know, along with all the classics. I, I I'm pretty sure we've all, you know, seen that. Just you know, you are a sad, strange little man, and you have my pity. Well, I, I I use that all the time. It's the most perfect quote ever. And this is like, it is a definitely a a very funny quote. Like you said, man, this this voice cast is just so phenomenal. The little that that's part of what makes me. Um, remember this movie so well and what's caused it to become so iconic for me is just the way they deliver their lines. Like, I don't just remember lines of dialogue. When I'm rewatching this, I remember the tone of the voice they say, you know, when their voices rise and when it lowers. Like, they just have... What are you looking at, you hockey puck? <laughs> you uncultured swine! Like, it's just so perfect um, that, like I said, I, I knew how everybody said everything and you know, if you were to give me a list of, you know, some of the greatest characters, Darth Vader, Joker, all of these other people, and then characters from this movie and say, you know, what, who would you recast? Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do this, it, <laughs> even though it's just this animated film. Like, it me, like, I just, the, the cast could not have been more perfect. And the way Tim Allen and Tom Hanks are able to play off each other this movie could be half as good as it is and the dynamic they bring when they're together would have still made it fantastic. Yeah. Like even though Buzz is, you know, completely delusional, we can't dislike him. You know, he brings so much poise and command and you're just self-assurance to every line that even though we know uh, Woody is right, we still sympathize with Buzz half the time. Yeah, and I feel like Tom Hanks, he just has this way of, like, even whenever he's being the arrogant, obnoxious one, first of all, I just don't think it's humanly possible to dislike Tom Hanks ever, <laughs> um, especially whenever he is Woody. So, I mean, all of the, the lines that he has, I think he's given some of the best lines of the series, uh, or of the, of the movie, like, what, the exchange between he and Buzz when... Buzz says, you know, I, I think the word you're look you're searching for is Space Ranger. <laughs> no, the word I'm searching for, I can't say because there's preschool toys around. Like he's getting kind of tense, huh? Like they're honestly what first of all, I forgot about that joke. Rewatching it, I was like, oh my gosh, this movie is even funnier than I remember. But Tom Hanks is able to play this character like this for a good portion of the movie, this semi, you know, self-absorbed character. In such a likable way, and that's that's one of the weird qualities about this movie is we have one character who's right, but is very arrogant and in a lot of ways just being a jerk throughout. And we have this other character who's just completely deluded in everything he you know the whole way he looks at life and this world. And yet they're both like the most likable characters in the entirety of film. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I love how she's like, they have these like subtle adult jokes in there that I never got as a kid. You know, why don't I get someone else to watch the sheep tonight? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, um, when, uh, Slink is backing up Woody and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, a potato head pulls out his lips and starts doing the thing for a kiss ass. Which I had Just, never noticed that until this time. And which is a joke you can only do with a with with a potato head toy. But it, yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah, and that this was so funny, you know, with the the etch a sketch drawing a, a noose or him doing that, like they use the actual like characters and the the kind of toy they are to really really sell some of these jokes like there's i'm picasso yeah like there's there's never just this this joke that's that's there that anyone could have said uh they're also distinct to either the character themselves or like what they actually are and can do <laughs> they knock his face off toss him overboard <laughs> <laughs> he man don rickles has some of the best lines as well everybody everybody has fantastic lines in this um, yeah, but to talk about like the the body of this movie and the story, what I find kind of crazy is that this movie really is only about. I mean, I mean that what actually happens is two, two toys fall out of a house and are forced to come back, like are not forced to come back, but are on a journey to to return to the house. Like it's so simple, and yet we get these incredibly iconic characters with these beautifully set up dynamic and an incredibly set up world and a bunch of great just little like isolated set pieces and very very real and well-written character arcs like all over the course of just i mean they they go from you know falling out of the window to you know pizza planet to sid's house to back to the house like it's so small and self-contained but it still tells such a full and complete story. There's just something so crazy about that to me. Yeah, and by putting us at the at the, you know at the toy level, all the shots are composed as if the toys are real full sized humans. So the world does, even though it's very very small, it feels huge. Like you know, a lock. You know, the, the door being closed is is like this huge obstacle they have to overcome now. Um, and just the use of the scale, I think, is pretty perfect throughout. You are you you completely completely embeds us into the world of the toys, and, and we we view it, we view the entire film through that that lens. And as we've said, you know, multiple times already, it's they use all of these things as efficiently as possible because the usage of scale and of like everyday objects. It's perfect for this movie and it serves the story great, but at the same time, it's also just used in hilarious ways. Like, um, what is it? Uh, bonding strip, which is just scotch tape. And like, <laughs> the, Mr. Lightyear wants more tape. Yeah, like, it's just all of those. Little, and then he's using like just little pieces of like, a, like marbles and jacks just as like, you know, tools and equipment. Um, so yeah, like, you know, when a door closes, it's an obstacle. Uh, when the batteries fall out, it's, you know, it completely throws everything into disarray. But, like, that's on top of the fact that it's already just a joke in itself just because of what it looks like. Uh, so, it's just, obviously, whenever you set, like, have your characters as these toys, you're going to be able to use that to make a lot of jokes. 
But it's it's never just a joke. It's always a joke and then something for the story. Yeah. And I, I like how they can make what is, you know, for all intents and purposes, a normal kid doing normal kid things. This horrifying, like, horror movie villain uh, with Sid. Like, I'm... I may or may not have strapped, uh, you know, plastic soldiers to bottle rockets and sent them up and melted them down and shot them with guns and <laughs> all of that stuff as a kid too, you know. So I, you know, I completely understand and you know even sympathize with Sid. I mean, yeah, he's kind of a jerk to his family, but I love that you just think they they can make that you that normal kid doing just kid stuff <laughs> to, into something that is so terrifying uh, for these toys. Yeah, even post story or even post Toy Story, I was still, you know, breaking out the old magnifying glass on a hot day. Just the way Sid's house is done as, you know, a horror film set. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, I kind of want to play with Sid. I love how imaginative he is. Oh, where are your rebel friends now? Talk! The launch of the shuttle has been delayed due to adverse weather conditions of the launch site. And this kid's got a healthy imagination. Yeah, and honestly, it wasn't even until this time that I realized, you know, how many pop culture references are in the movie and like between he and, or Buzz's mission being to find the plans to this planet destroying <laughs> base and then like Sid's line, like, where are your rebel friends? Um, he's a, he's a, I'm sure he, you know, watched Star Wars like all of us, but yeah, it is funny the way they shoot his room. Like all the posters are all crooked and tilted on his walls. We we get a few Dutch angles in there. The the dim lights, everything. It's it does turn a very like kind of normal kid into like this. I mean, he might as well be Jason. Yeah, and the toy contraptions he creates are horrifying. They just when the ba- the baby's head to the spider leg comes out, and the sound design of the leg as he raises up. Oh. And- it's just like this screeching sound. You just see what he petrified. It's just, it's just so great. Yeah, this movie very, like, legitimately scared me. The although this movie, I feel like, did in a very real way teach me a very valuable lesson because I remember every you know after seeing this, I always tried to make sure not to judge someone by what they look because I always went back like, well. I mean, the toys from Toy Story look pretty scary, but they <laughs> saved Woody. Like, I I feel like I definitely walked away with the valuable lesson from this movie. Um, but yeah, like they they really did freak me out. Though. And for whatever reason, I don't know why this one in particular scared me so much. But the the walking legs with the like the upper body being like the the fishing pole thing <laughs> that that may have haunted my nightmares once or twice as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> And then they completely traumatized that poor kid. We toys see everything. It wasn't until this viewing that, that I actually thought about, like, they, they just did some lasting damage on this kid. It's terrifying. Just, like, come out, just coming out of the water and all just coming around. And it's just, Which is a great ugh. touch, is what he acknowledged, you know. That is a, that is a great touch on the whole plan. Yeah. And then, you know, I guess we're kind of coming to it now, but the climax of this movie is incredible. I, I remember whenever whenever Slinky lowers the ramps and he's reaching out, I pictured in my head, like, what if we replaced all of these characters with live action people? And we're still getting, you know, a like an exciting 
action set piece as you know the end of the movie like I, I i could see the truck being this you know plane trying to take off and there are you know humans on a motorcycle trying to catch up to this guy who's extending his hand like it it's set up and presented like like actual action scenes and you know there's an obstacle and they have to fight to overcome it and they reach something else and then this changes everything it's it's shot and i i feel like you the storyboards for this would look similar to something like, honestly, I just get pictures of Indiana you, Jones, Indiana Jones, <laughs> or in my mind with the like, just using the airplane analogy, like thinking of like something like Fast and Furious during one of the more ridiculous <laughs> pieces from that, where it's it's just a series of you know further complications um, and constantly overcoming that and getting to the next thing, and I mean it looks fun and silly because of you know it's really just a moving truck and people on like this rc car but it's like because the whole movie is presented from the level of these toys this is an action scene this is this is there's there's stakes here um and it it moves every every beat you can find like this beat affects this next thing and this happens because of that it's just a really impressively staged scene the entire climax really yeah and you you have to wear Woody and Buzz's character arcs are, you know, completely resolved, you know, before the climax begins. But but the climax is, is basically, you know, te- testing testing that growth to see whether it's actually real. And the, the entire climax is literally them saving each other one time, one after the other. Like all the setbacks, you know, they miss the truck, the car, the car because Woody had to go back to to pull Buzz out, and then you know Buzz jumps off to to fight up. Scud, and then Woody has to. Uh, Woody can't, you know, fight back against the toys because he's trying to drive Buzz. It's just <laughs> over and over again. You know, all the setbacks are coming from them. You know, literally proving their character growth. The simply, you know, trying to catch up with the truck would have been, you know, could have been conflict enough. But then they bring back the the conflict that's already been set up with all the toys who think, uh, think Woody is a murderer. You know that is you know brought back in to add add to the cli- add to the uh, conflict and threat of the climax. It's just it's so tight. And what I love about it is the resolutions to every individual problem during that has been set up before. Like every problem is set up where they they miss the bus initially because of the rocket that's strapped to Buzz. Um, you know they're they're able to light the rocket because of the match that's uh, in Woody's holster. Like every time they they overcome everything, or every time and the magnifying new, glass, the, the magnifying so, so. glass, or you know the dog chasing them. Like there's just nothing comes out of nowhere. There's never a problem that just randomly happens. Like you said, the, the other toys thinking he's still, you know, the um, has potential. I mean, it, it's hilarious seeing him kick. Uh, he's at it again. <laughs> yeah, like it's. <laughs> Even from their perspective, you totally get it. So every problem and every resolution has been completely set up to where it it doesn't feel like you. Know, I'm, I'm sure we've all seen the movies where it's just it almost gets tedious the amount of things that keep going wrong because they feel like it comes out of nowhere. There's there's this one movie that I watched years ago called Vertical Limit about these ice climbers trying to escape this situation. Hair like just a, a terrible and horrible movie because. During the entire climax, it just this problem that was never referred to before just happens out of nowhere, and then it happens eight more times with these different problems that just seemingly come out of random to extend the runtime. But here, it's everything is so earned that you don't really feel like it's it's taking too long because every time something happens, you're like, oh yeah, I remember, I forgot they did that, and that would do this, and it's 
we're watching this full story unfold with all of these different elements that have already been used kind of come back to play or, you know, little foreshadows be actualized now. It's it's just a really, really cool scene. Yeah. And I wanted to go back back to the character of Buzz. Um, you know, they, they so perfectly set him up as this completely delusional person. But then you, you have the moment where he sees the his own commercial and we, we have like a literal like psychotic meltdown over the course of like a minute and a half to where you know he's completely on top of the world he knows who he is he knows what he's doing he has his mission and he's going to do it to where you know he's laying at the bottom of the stairs with his arm broken off and he's lost all will to live and that happens over the course of like less than two minutes and it's perfectly done and talk about it, another like just traumatizing shot as a as a child like I see just panning up from Buzz lying Clearly. in defeat with uh, the, with even John um where uh with even Randy Newman just sounding depressed at the side of it it was man, another rough moment for a kid uh, yeah, that's an that's another scene that I feel like could have could have been done really poorly where it could have just felt like it came out of nowhere but this idea of you know them having to hide from this dog and him seeing like the truth of what the movies what the characters of the movie have always been saying like I said just one see I was gonna it's not completely dialogueless because you know he says his catchphrase to infinity and beyond but without you know other than that there's no there's no dialogue it's just him seeing the truth and then like that that scene of him just jumping fully believing no, it can't be true <laughs> it's just his entire world comes crashing down and then you know seeing him afterwards is completely hilarious but also it i mean i i buy it because it's not just like oh this one thing that i happen to think was true is it like his entire world everything he thinks about everything is completely changed and so we we get to see this absolutely hilarious psychotic breakdown and the introduction of mrs nesbitt and i like that it has real consequences like it lasts for, I think, a good 15, 20 minutes of, you know, and it goes through his faces, you know, of the total maniacs. You see that? I'm Mrs. Nesbitt. <laughs> opens his helmet, slaps him with his own arm, and pops it back down. And just, just his eyes just get, like, returned back to normal yeah. listening. I'm sorry. I, years of academy training wasted. But yeah, and then like it goes from that to kind of that where he's you know playing with his arm, and then you know t- towards the you know the complete depression, and then finally at the end where he's he's still like he's, you know, he's still in that depression phase, but he's 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 lucid. He understands what he is, and he's kind of, he's kind of given up simply because he's realized, oh yeah, I'm I'm not a spaceship. I'm just an insignificant little toy. But then you you have. Woody giving him that talk, which is, you know, proof um, of Woody finally learning and finally growing into the thing where he's, you know, uh, where he, you know, he tell, he basically lays out the purpose of a toy, which, you know, which, you know, he said, he said all, all this stuff before at the staff meeting. But here you can tell he, Woody really understands what he's saying. And that's, you know, that's that. And that's what snaps, um, Buzz out of his misery, and you you have Woody, you know, finally 
being willing to do what is best for Andy. And you know, if if Woody is truly stuck, then the best thing for Andy would be for Buzz, you know, to escape and to leave him. And he's willing, you know, to sacrifice him. He's willing to stay there if it means, you know, Buzz can go and make Andy happy. And it's beautiful and I cry. <laughs> and something else that I think is just really impressive about that is that it's really just one line from Woody that changes it. When he when he goes on about talking about how you know great of a toy Buzz is and how really it's it's Woody who's who's got the real problem. Uh, and his plea for him to, you know, go to Andy, it's just one line of dialogue. And yet, you know, because of that Buzz does a complete 180 and he's on board. That could feel so rushed, but it doesn't contradict anything about Buzz that we've learned. Even you know during his times where he's you know deluded and thinking of himself as an actual space ranger, we still get to learn more about who he is you know as a person. Um, and he he does seem noble. He does seem upright. He seems very dedicated to this mission of his to find or to uh, relay these stolen plans. He. You know, he seems like his heart is in the right place, and so now that he's time, that he has now that he's had time to deal with this world-shattering news, when he hears of this new mission and you know, like his new purpose, it resonates with him because you know that that's just who he is, and the movie has told us that's who he is. So, in in one line of dialogue, I as a viewer completely buy that he. would He'd instantly get on that box and help free Woody because he's he's found a new mission, and this time with a mission, it's not just this you know, this mission helps me find my purpose. It's he's doing it out of the goodness of his heart and because of Woody's plea, and you see that legitimate character growth with him. Where now, his mission isn't this arbitrary thing anymore. Uh, it, it's something that he genuinely believes in, and so I just I just think the the resolution to this setback. Is it's just really well done considering how short it happens. It it doesn't feel rushed at all. Um, something I noticed with the direction this time. Um, it's just you know how simple uh the visuals are. Like the camera rarely even moves. Most of the shots are very still, but I think they're all really well composed. And you have these like very nice, clean frames. I think a lot of that is simply because. Uh, you know, for budget and so the technology wasn't there, you had to fill the frame up with moving things. But I think it kind of works to the movie's advantage. To where it feels like you know every little every composition, even though it's completely simple, just feels very effective. And, and I think it helps just you know making you know, every scene memorable just because of how just how well staged everything is and just how little you know, there's they don't have to they don't rely on crazy camera work or um. Or just just visual noise to sell it. They ha- every shot has to be completely sold simply by by you know whatever one or two things are in, in the are in the foreground. And I think it makes for some really uh, effective shots that, that stick with you. Yeah, and um, you know we were talking before about the the way the whole movie is is framed from their perspective to make you know day to day things look enormous. I think they're able to use that in their favor. You can you know. Making having these great compositions is made easier when you have, you know, all of these ideas to choose from. You know, how can we make this gas station look like um, what is it, a, a refueling station? According to Buzz, like 
these huge obstacles. Trucks are enormous. So whenever you have, like, you go into Pizza Planet, the camera doesn't have to move. You can just put the camera on the ground from their angle and, like, make what is really just a very regular sized room look like this huge expanse and make it just look really, really pretty and cool. Uh, and so it just, I think they're able to use the concept to really help with the camera to where every, we don't have to move it around. We can just look at this world from the toys angles and it happens to just look really cool. Yeah. Uh, I already mentioned the sound design, but I, uh, there's a couple of moments that you mentioned the gas station and the scene where the truck pulls up and you have the horn and you just feel the weight as that tire comes over. It stops right over Woody's nose. Like you, the weight and, and all that is, is in the sound um, or with, with, this, with the toy soldiers and the, the little click clack of their, of their joined together feet sounds just like, you know, the toys you play with as, as a kid. Um, all of the sound in every moment feels as I said, it feels like it's it's crafted to be iconic, and and I think it's just a huge part of why this film is so memorable, and, it, and the way they capture the you know these toy sounds and how norm how loud and bit how loud uh, normal to everyday acti- human activities would be from its perspective is very effective. Yeah, and then I mean, talk about iconic just the the. Uh the voices that play in the toys, you know, there's a snake in my, like, I mean, that's iconic and, <laughs> and, and they're used to really funny effects. And, you know, within the movie, that makes sense with his, his string getting caught on the, the railing or one of my favorites, which is, uh, the fight under the truck. And as Woody's slamming buzz into the ground, it's weird. Buzz, 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 light your dress. <laughs> like it's, I, that slight, you know, with, especially with Woody, you know, it sounds kind of used, you know, like that string's been pulled a lot. And so, I mean, Tom Hanks makes it sound awesome. But then, you know, whenever the sound guys put it through everything that they do, it, it all just feels like this very real lived in world with all these real sounds that that we're hearing from from their perspective. And it's, it's just really funny and cool. Um, I would ask you, how do you think? Do you think the animation holds up? You know, this is the, the first CGI animated film, so obviously it would be allowed to look old. Um, but do you think it still works or does it look pretty dated to you? I mean, whether it holds up or, or works, I feel like it's kind of a... It's weird answering that because you definitely do... If the question is, does it look dated, then I feel like yes, I would have to say yes, just comparing this to what we see now from Pixar. Like... Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's just undeniable uh, but if the question is you know does it still work then absolutely it does you know, some some of the facial animations are are a bit weird <laughs> there's a couple of moments where Woody almost just looks kind of creepy but really it, it still works perfect for the film I the fact that I can rewatch it for this and fall possibly more in love with it than I ever was is a testament to the fact that Animation is definitely not something holding us back. Um, so it, the difference is noticeable, but like you said, with it being like the first big kind, like big film of its kind, um, I think it holds up as well as it needs to to still be effective. For me, I, honestly, it's really only the humans and maybe the dog that don't hold up. Like they they look kind of creepy and, and very they're very plastic like. But you know they chose to make a movie about toys 
because of the technology. They they knew they couldn't make uh, convincing humans, but uh, but hard plastics look. I think they they look great. Um, in early even in early animation, I'm I honestly really don't have a problem with any of the like the movement or just the toys themselves. The, the the world around them is usually made up of hard objects, so it never really bothers me unless you're looking at Andy or, or his mom, which helps because they're usually kind of off frame. But I think one thing that really sells the reality of the world is the lighting, and I I, it's, I think it's amazing how good they were able to mimic you know real lighting and shadows, and you know for their first film like. What, what, Every scene, there's all you know. There's you always see where the light source is. You see the shadow. You see kind of the light on them. Then you see the shadow. And then Buzz's helmet, which is you know, is literally this dome of glass. And it, where it, no matter where he is, you always see the reflection of of every like everybody around him or the room is all kind of reflected in this constantly moving dome on his head. And the the fact that they were able to do it so well in their first film, I think, is pretty incredible. Yeah, it, like I said, it it definitely holds up. There there are some moments where. I- like, I think the only thing it was, it really felt like, oh, wow, yeah, that, that that's definitely old, was uh, climbing through the back of the pizza truck. The the texture on the back, on the window in the back with the dirt on it was fairly bad. But, like, they're still, they're still able to use it to tell, like, or to create these real characters. And, like, the, the movement of them themselves, I mean, they're, they are all toys. They all do have those those limbs that can only bend one way. So if it looks robotic or anything, like it's kind of supposed to. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, the focus of this movie being on the toys, I think the animation works, you know, great. Even still. Yeah. And before we uh, close, I I know I've been harping on this, the the storytelling and writing, but I kind of bet just how every scene in this film is doing several things at once. Like, not not only is it is each scene you know having its own like sto- mini story and conflict, but you know it, it, they're always you know picking up off the scene previously, and they basically always lead directly into the next scene. Like the, there are only like maybe two or three fade to blacks in the entire film. Like every other scene in this movie is is transition to perfectly from the previous scene you almost almost like quasi real time like each each scene you know comes in has its own story has like two or three side stories going on that, that, that all kind of come back and influence that story and then leads instantly into the other uh, into the next uh you know segment there's no there's there are so few like hard scene transitions and it, it just gives the film such a great sense of pace and momentum it never stops and it never even has a chance, you know, to get boring because there's always something important being done and being set up or paying off something that was set up. It's, it's really, really amazing. I think it really should have been, I think nominated for, you know, a best screenplay. Cause I think you can, I'm pretty sure some people do. You could use this, you know, in a screenwriting class you know, to show just how to, be, be economic in your storytelling and to make a, you know, a very well-paced story. Yeah, completely agreed. That's, I wonder if one of the benefits was, was it being, you know, the first of its kind. I mean, they have all obviously the hand-drawn animated movies to, to look at, but with, with this being the first movie like this, they had just, you know, live action movies 
to look at. And so with some movies now, with some animated movies now, you know, you feel like, well, it's just a kid's movie. We'll, we'll make it like a kid's movie. But then it was, I mean, it's structured and paced out like a, like a full fledged feature film. It's not just this, this little animated thing that they don't have to worry about. And so I think that might be part of why the movie moves as well as it does is because I mean, they're, they're just writing a movie, you know, they're trying, Mm -hmm. they're doing the first of its kind, but it's, 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 you know, following all of these other movies and that's, that's what they have to look at. Yeah. And you look at any interview with any of the Pixar brain trusts and they're all to a one incredibly adamant that they, they don't believe that animation is, you know, a tool for kids films. Like, <laughs> you would be insulted. You'd be insulting them to call the uh, any Pixar movie a kids' film. They, they 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 very intentionally craft them to work for all ages. I, I think we'll start moving in towards a close. Um, so upon its initial release, it received pretty universal critical acclaim. I mean, the, the computer animation, the voice work, and the script uh, all received special praise. Um, and critics. Uh, as well, really uh, appreciated the film's ability to appeal to both uh, kids and adults. Uh, obviously, Rotten Tomatoes didn't come uh, onto the scene until much later, uh, but it is currently one of those uh, very few films uh, with a perfect uh, 100% rating on the site. You know, and if it was ever earned, it's this movie. Oh, absolutely. Honestly, I don't even know where to start when talking about this movie's legacy because, I mean, first and foremost the entire field of animation as it exists today is due at least in part to this movie. You know, this is, this is the first CGI animated film and, you know, it took a few years, but now CGI is the, basically the only uh, form of animation being used in mainstream animated films. Um, you know, it's completely taken over. So like, as far as like, look, just looking at a legacy, that's just mind boggling. Just to you know how influential this film was. But also, I think even more importantly than that, I think this was well, well with Toy Story and Pixar as a company, which Pixar was born from um, Toy Story. If Toy Story had flopped, they would have gone. They would have gone under. But with Pixar, you have that this kind of gold standard of storytelling. You know. Whenever anyone you know, wants to use an example of a film that can work for adults and kids, they go to Pixar. And I think that they have that you can see their influence onto other like Disney and DreamWorks, where it's you know it's just simple, clean adult storytelling that doesn't pander. That you know, it's it's just, it's kind of it's now the expectation for children's films to at least function for adults, where I don't think it really was before this. Um, now if a film only works for kids, that's kind of viewed at, uh, you know, at large, you know, kind of as a flaw in the film and, and it, it, it definitely shaped my, uh, kind of how I viewed films. Like it was interesting. I grew up on Pixar films <laughs> going back to, to, to older Disney films. You see how they really weren't trying before this to craft their films, you know, with, with, with this type of, with this type of intricate storytelling and they weren't, you know, they weren't trying to make films that, that could, you know, appeal to all ages. But after this, the, the entire field of children's filmmaking, I think was, was changed um, to where I think, you know, filmmakers realized 
that you could indeed, you know, make a movie that functions on every level for both audiences and sometimes even more so, even though a kid will absolutely love it, they won't even get it until they're an adult. And I, I think their their influence on storytelling as a whole has been monumental, you know, as well as from the technological standpoint. Yeah, honestly, like movies like this and like Indiana Jones are why I think this podcast is so much fun, especially talking about its legacy because, I mean, because of how far back they are, we can give a, a more accurate assessment of the legacy it's left behind. And like you said, it, I mean, it jump-started Pixar. It, it's changed what animated movies look like, what we hold them to. Um, I mean, and then it's, it's legacy just within individual people. I think anybody who watched this movie when it first came out and had it as a part of their childhood, like, it's, it's shaped a huge portion, I mean, of my childhood, this this series and uh you know of yours and it's it's just such a tangible and obvious legacy to see the what this movie has done i mean it and it's completely earned you know rewatching that it, it's absolutely fantastic it, it earned that 100 percent, and it, i'm glad that it exists so that other animated movies are forced to strive that much harder and i think what's even more important than you know its ability the way it has you know uh completely captured the hearts and minds of children is that people who were adults when this movie came out still talk about this movie. And I think you know, that's really the sign of a, of a great family film. You know, the fact that it, it, it captured adults and children alike, and it, it hasn't faded away. This is still like any list of re- the rankings of Pixar films. Toy Story is always just about, just about always in the top five. And it's still on a lot of lists, you know, considered still to be the, their best film. Like it, 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 it's, it hasn't faded at all. If anything, I think it, it's it's just grown, you know, since then. No, I mean, look, we're we're about to get Toy Story four. Like the the relevance of this series is still here, like it's always been. Yeah. Well, I think that's a pretty good uh, place to close out on. If you couldn't tell, we like this movie. Um. So, I want to try to bring something new, and at the end of each episode, I will give our star rating for the film you know, a five star 10 point system um so what would you rate this movie out of five? Oh, five out of five i mean i i mean we've spent most of our reviews we always find some way to like bring in some sort of negative criticism but i mean <laughs> i can't really for the life of me think of anything uh, bad to say about this so it would just be wrong for me to give this anything below five I say five too. It 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 is it is one of those few films that I will point to as a perfect movie. Um, so that was easy. <laughs> um, so if you again, if you enjoy the show, please uh, go and rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook. We are there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we are there as Franchise Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to franchisefatiguepodcast.com. Uh, James, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd. I'm there as J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Um, and I have continued, although it's it's been easy so far, having only seen technically three new releases this year. Um, but I continue to update uh, everything I see, star ratings and reviews, so you can see what, uh, what I'm seeing there. 
Uh, and I also write for a site called Article Asylum. You can find us there at articleasylum.wordpress.com. Um, and and <laughs> sounding, sounding like a broken record. I, I've got a couple series there that I'm, I plan on finishing. And there's a, a lot of other great articles there as well that you can find. And I'm also on Letterboxd. You can find me there at, as Gabriel Green. And I'm on Twitter at Gabe A. Green. And uh, so for uh, next week, we will be back with Toy Story 2, which I remember being better than Toy Story without having seen Toy Story again. I'm not so sure. I'm really interested to go back and rewatch it to see uh, how, it, how it holds up against this first one. Yeah, I'm also just really excited to see because, like I said, this this was kind of one of the most defining films of my childhood, and nostalgia will probably come into play here more than anywhere else. But, like you said, I this is probably actually my favorite of the trilogy, so I'm I'm really excited. So until next week, when we find out where exactly this fits, we will see you in the sequel. It's gone. It's all gone. Bye bye, woo. See ya. Some other folks might be a little bit smarter than I am Big and stronger too Maybe But none of them Will ever love you the way I do It's me and you, boy And as the years go by A friendship will never die You're gonna see it's a destiny you got a friend in me You got a friend in me You got a friend in me